Hello, friends. Welcome to the ATC Double Cut. Today, we're going to talk about transition zone grasses and a bit of the science behind those grasses. I am very pleased to have Dr. Mike Richardson, professor from the horticulture department at the University of Arkansas, joining the show today. Welcome, Dr. Mike Richardson. Thank you, Micah. It's uh, great to be here. Um, I'm happy to have a chance to, to chat with you a little bit. I was going back and looking uh, over the last few years and trying to remember the last time I actually saw you face to face. And I think it was probably in Bangkok in uh, 2019. I don't think I've seen you since then. That's right. Um, we corresponded actually in, I think it was in uh, February of 2020. 20 because you were supposed to be going to Tokyo for right. a Toil Green seminar um, in late February or maybe in March or something. And you were like, mm, maybe, maybe I'm not going to be able to travel at that time. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that trip got, uh, got canceled. But uh, interestingly, uh, just uh, this morning, I got a, an email from uh, that same group uh, about possibly coming over uh, this February uh, to do a seminar. So uh, hopefully four years, or I guess it would be three years later now, um, that, that trip uh, may actually may actually happen. Yeah, that would be that would be cool. That that's a nice seminar that they hold, and I remember I went to that. I think, if I remember correctly, when I was a golf course superintendent in Japan in the winter, it would have been the winter of two thousand one, and I believe Milt Engelke was speaking. Um, okay, if I remember right. But you know, when you try to remember things that are more than two decades ago. Uh, people and places and times get all mixed up, don't they? <laughs> so let's talk about some more recent uh, research and more uh, things that are more fresh on our mind. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about green speed, and or at least we'll start off talking about green speed and the grasses that we can use on putting greens. I wrote a blog post uh, some years ago. And I updated it last in 2021. And that post has a title, Green Speed Ridgeline Plot and the Work to Produce These Conditions. And I had, from 2011 up until early 2021, I had made 903 measurements of putting green speed with a stint meter under non-tournament conditions. So I excluded all the measurements that I made when greens were prepared for tournaments. And there's a wide range of species that I had a chance to measure on because I had traveled some. So I had bent grass poa, pure poa annua, Bermuda grass, bent grass, fine fescue, seashore paspalum, cori, which is zoysia, and sarangoon grass, which is digitaria didactyla. And I had summarized those green speeds, and the median values were highest for bent grass, for poa, for Bermuda grass. Fescue and seashore paspalum were in the middle, and zoysia and sarangoon grass were lower. And I know you've done some research with uh, your grad student, Tom Walton, especially recently, right? With, with some of the newer zoysia. And I know there's always, I always assume that zoysia greens are going to be relatively slow, in fact, the, the picture that's in the background, if you're watching this on the video, this is 
uh, a green at the Royal Bangkok Sports Club, which is Zoysia Greens. You visited there in 2019 when we met in Bangkok. And there are Zoysia Greens all over East and Southeast Asia, and they've been used for many years in this part of the world. It's nothing new. And the greens are renowned for having a lot of grain and for being relatively slow. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have fast uh, fast greens with zoysia, but in general, it's, it's pretty slow because the leaf blades are so stiff. But then there's all these varieties that get tested in the U.S., and you saw the research that was done at the University of Tennessee, and so they're comparing zoysia against zoysia, but they never put a bent grass or tiff eagle in that trial that, was it Tyler? Tyler yeah, Carr? Tyler, Tyler Carr. So, so that was some really interesting research about the grow-in and, and, and what type of surfaces were produced with the zoysia. But the thing that, that I thought was a drawback with that study, they never compared if you'd managed tiff eagle in the same way or if managed bent grass in the same way, what would happen in Knoxville? Well, what you've done in Fayetteville, you had laser, which is a really fine-bladed zoysia that's suitable for greens. And did you compare that against tiff eagle also and and Ben Grass, could you tell me a little bit about the research that was done? Yeah, this the study itself. Well, let me let me just back up. I mean, we have um, all three of those species uh, on our putting greens here in, in Fayetteville. We have um, um, uh, we've had tiff eagle greens for a number of years. Uh, we've had pen, uh, bent grass greens, various varieties for um, twenty plus years, and then now we've had a laser zoysia green for um, I think this is going into its fourth season. But when, when we originally established that laser green, one of the things we did was we established some large replicated blocks of laser uh, side by side with, with uh, Tiff Eagle. So we had those two species kind of in side by side, same cultural practices um, for the most part. Um, uh, conditions, and then that was really kind of the foundation of Thomas Walton's um, research, where he was going to compare uh, Tiff Eagle to to Laser, and and we had we had really probably the biggest objective there, Micah, was to uh, was to look at um, the sh the relative shade tolerance of those two species because. You know, we know that that Bermuda grass um, can can really suffer from low light conditions, and that was kind of what we were thinking would be uh, maybe the niche for some of these newer uh, zoysia grass types, where would maybe be on older golf courses that had, you know, very mature, well established trees and potentially uh, shade problems. So. Uh, the study was basically a side-by-side -side comparison of those two um, uh, cultivar species uh, in this trial. And then we looked at some other things. We had a couple of different mowing heights. Uh, we had a, a tenth of an inch versus 0.125 inches. So that's, you know, in metric would be about, you know, two and a half millimeters and then maybe a little over three millimeters, uh, the mowing heights. And then we also looked at um, the use of the growth regulator uh, trinexapac ethyl, uh, we had that uh, also uh, in the study to see if that was giving us uh, really any kind of, uh, you know, improvement in 
quality, putting green speed, shade tolerance, whatever we thought we might get out of using the growth regulator. So that's that was kind of the summary of the study. Now, again, we have bent grass and other greens there on the site, but we really never did direct comparisons of speed of, of those two uh, grasses against against bent grass in a control study. Now, we're going to do some of that this year. Oh, nice. Um, and so uh, we're going to have some some replicated plots that we're going to actually look at all three of those. And then uh, we're going to do some work on paspalum as well. So we're going to try to, you know, look at some some green speed measurements uh, in a little bit more of a control study. Oh, awesome. That that will be good. Is that going to be is your um, field day? What day is it this year? August 1? August 1. Yes. August 1. The hottest got, day of the I, summer. I got this shirt uh, oh, at yeah, the 2000, 2016 field day, I believe. You are sporting the Razorback this morning. I, that's, I, just, I didn't notice it until you pointed it out. Yeah, there. oh, we both are. You are too. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Um, that, that was fun. I would love to go back to that field day again sometime. Um, it's just sometimes it's tricky to <laughs> get from Bangkok to Fayetteville. Yes, <laughs> not, not, a, not an easy way to do that. <laughs> yes, so... I, if I remember right, the Tiff Eagle generally was a little bit faster than the laser. When and at so when they're maintaining the same mowing height with the same primo rates with the same treatments. Did did you fertilize them the same, or or did you cut the we, nitrogen we, on the we, laser? Uh, we did. We did not fertilize the laser as much as we were fertilizing the Bermuda grass. I'd, I'd have to go back and look at those numbers, Micah. But I want to say. Um, we were, I think, over the entire growing season, about uh, two pounds of nitrogen per thousand on the laser, and I think we were maybe three to three and a half on the on the Tiff Eagle. So mm-hmm. we had a little bit higher uh, fertility rate on that. And and you found that the Tiff Eagle had more uh, a longer ball roll distance. Yeah, pretty much uh, throughout both of the years of the trial. Um, you know, I would say month to month. Um, the Tiff Eagle was always probably a foot uh, to upwards closer to maybe two feet in some cases uh, faster uh, than, than the laser. Now, you know, we did have a few collection periods and it, it always seemed like it was kind of late in the season, maybe a September uh, reading that the, the laser uh, tended to get a little bit closer to the Tiff Eagle in terms of, of green speeds and again i'm not i'm not really sure exactly what was causing that but but we certainly uh, saw some dates especially you know august september later in the summer when um the laser seemed to get you know closer to the tiff eagle never never you know had faster speeds than the tiff eagle but uh i remember a couple of months where we didn't have you know statistical differences between them in terms of speed um we we were never able to get the speeds that that john sorokin and tyler carr and those those folks at tennessee reported um usually the fastest green speeds we saw on on laser were probably about 11 feet Mm mm-hmm yeah, I, which would be fine. I was, yeah, I was surprised. It's like uh, research plots aren't renowned for having like green speeds of thirteen or something, and Tyler's plots were getting like thirteen. I'm like, what's going on? That's that's crazy. But yeah, they, I think they were rolling them a lot, and uh, yeah, they they had good speed. But it's also yeah, so we were, cold. We were it's rolling, so we were rolling our some too, but we weren't really aggressively rolling them. I think mm-hmm. we were rolling them maybe three days a week or something like that. But 
Is Fayetteville warmer, considerably warmer than Knoxville? Um, probably not actually. I would, I would say we're pretty similar. Um, you know, we've got some elevation here in, in Northwest Arkansas and that, that helps moderate our temperatures a little bit. Um, so I, w- I would say Fayetteville and Knoxville are, are pretty similar in terms of, um, you know, what our kind of summer patterns are. So you've worked with laser, but not with any of the other new zoysias for, for greens. No, we have not. Um, you know, back in, oh gosh, I think it was 2013, um, there was a national turf grass evaluation program putting green trial that had both Bermuda grasses and zoysia grasses in it. And we installed that here in Fayetteville. And, and unfortunately, um, we, we ended up losing the entire trial because we had like, you know, of the 20 entries of, of those grasses. And there were also some paspalums in it, you know, like 10 of them completely winter killed the first year. So now you got all these big dead spots in the middle of this sand based putting green, which is not very easy to manage. And we replanted it again and same thing happened the next year. So finally we threw our hands up and said, this is not going to work. And it would have been nice because there were definitely some of these newer greens type zoysia grasses in there that it would have been nice to get some, you know, at least some preliminary data on how they might perform here, but uh, we, we really didn't. And then when we got to this project with Thomas, we we just decided one cultivar was was all that we really wanted to try to handle. You know, I think Laser did the best in that um, in in that NTEP trial. And in fact, I've got a blog post about that too, um, which maybe I it doesn't. I would have to search for it and I'm not going to bother searching for it. But, um, there, if you search NTEP, actually I will, let me see what happens if I search NTEP on my website. I've got a couple. Yeah. So, um, if you see this one, can you see this, Mike? I, I can. So if we look at the, I, I summarized this for the sites that reported green speed and uh, the Synodin data, I averaged across Tiff Eagle, Mini Verde, and Tiff Dwarf. And for Zoysia, I averaged across Laser, Trinity, and Diamond. But Laser was always faster than Trinity and Diamond. And if you look at these, the red lines are Synodin or Bermuda grass, and the blue dotted line is Zoysia. And it's basically, like you said, at all these locations from Florida, from Kentucky, from Palm Springs, from Virginia, from Starkville, Mississippi, from Tucson, Arizona, all through the year, in the summer, the Bermuda grass is about a foot faster, sometimes more, sometimes a little bit less. It's faster than zoysia. And I looked just at the at the uh, the zoysia specifically with the data from that NTEP and let's see, laser is the green line. Oh, so now now we got laser and Tiff Eagle and Trinity. So Tiff Eagle is the blue, the sorry, the orange dashed line, and Tiff Eagle is almost always um, considerably faster at all those sites. So when we see that type of data, that's that matches very well with what I've observed in. Asia, which is that if you have a Bermuda grass green, the ball rolls farther than if you have zoysia. 
So I, I've been surprised at how far north people try to push zoysia greens in the USA when I just don't see that there's any any reason to do that. Because also there's the seed head issue, which I don't think is solved yet. Do you can you tell me a little bit about what you see with the seed heads and if, if that's uh, what what the good management is for that? Well, I wish we had an answer. I, I don't have an answer. I can tell you it's a, um, you know, when I, when I talk about zoysia greens to, to superintendents, you know, I, I kind of do a, a, a picture uh, session at the end of my presentation and I call it, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly from the, the movie. And so I have a picture of either Clint Eastwood or Lee Van Cleef or, you know, the bad, the bad or the, the guy that played the ugly. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but you know, the, you know, there's some things about zoysia that I like, but there, there are some things that are that are really problematic and, and seed heads are one of them. And, um, you know, I don't know if if this changes as you, you move latitudes, as you get farther north into the transition zone. But at least on laser, uh, we've seen uh, we, we have a huge flush of seed heads early in the spring. It's it's kind of similar to Meyer zoysia grass and and that the seed heads come out very early, just really as the grass is starting to, to you know, to green up, uh, you start getting this this flush of seed heads and they are they are extremely stemmy, um, very similar to the leaves. They appear to have a lot of, you know, silica in them and they're very stiff and they're very, very hard to mow. And we will see these seed heads for a period of anywhere from four to six weeks. They, they really are disruptive to, uh, to play or to ball roll. And um, we're, we're getting ready. We, we got a project uh, that was funded by the, the USGA, and it's, we're going to be doing it here uh, down at Texas A&M Dallas and then also at um, uh, the University of Tennessee. Where we're going to look at some of these fall applied um, uh, plant growth regulators, things like Proxy or Ethafon. Um, Aaron Patton kind of worked some stuff out on that with Meyer, and we're going to try to see if we can use those same types of, of chemical approaches in the fall to, you know, to try to reduce or minimize um, these spring seed heads. Um, is it going to work? I, I really have no idea, but the first the first trials will be going out um, here in a few months. Yeah, that that's going to be really interesting, and it's something that I follow closely um, because it it seems to me like the the zoysia varieties that have been used in Asia have been selected to be ones that don't produce so many seed heads at a low mowing height in this climate and at these latitudes. But then you, you bring something over that's been developed in the U S at different latitudes, different temperatures. I don't know how it's, it's going to perform here because these new zoysias haven't been used so much, uh, in this part of the world, but there is a lot of zoysia here that just doesn't have that problem. But certainly you see with Xeon and with Trinity, when those are planted, not so much at green height, but those are planted on fairways, and, and green surrounds and so on in Southeast Asia, they, they do have a lot of seed heads. But the problem is you've got, a lo- uh, you've got high temperatures and short days for six months of the year in a tropical climate. So you have the potential to have a lot of seed head issues. And I've seen where there are seed head issues. And it, if we knew what, uh, w- what good treatments were, that, that would be nice. 
Well, and, and I think one of the biggest challenges, and this is going to, again, it's going to take more than one year of data to try to figure some of this out, is that, um, you know, one of the things that Aaron Patton did uh, with his work with, with Ethafon was he kind of tried to model it against, you know, uh, cooling degree days uh, to try to figure out the optimum timing. Because uh, I think, you know, again, this would be a great dissertation project for somebody to try to just understand some of the biology of floral development in zoysia grass. Uh, because for years, I mean, you know, I guess we weren't smart enough to look, um, but, you know, we would see these seed heads in the spring. And so we just thought they were being initiated and developing in the spring. But in fact, they're they're all initiating in the fall of the year. And so the timing of, of applying uh, a chemical um, to try to suppress them is going to be, you know, it's going to be critical. Uh, but there really haven't, haven't been any good studies just looking at the basic biology of that, that floral development, which would, I think, help steer those projects probably a little bit better. If we knew the exact stage of development that you need to apply the chemical, then you could more easily apply that uh, data to another, a newer variety that, you know, maybe develops a little bit slower or a little bit quicker. And then you could figure that out and then make your applications based on that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I measured or I counted all the seed heads in the zoysia I have in pots at home uh, for a couple of years. And so there's both variety differences and seasonal differences, but the seasonal differences I'm right now I'm, I'm less than seven degrees North of the equator. So the day length doesn't change very much and the temperature doesn't change very much. And so be, when you don't have so much day length change, um, you don't get a huge flush. They're, they're, they're seed heads all year, but there's more of them when the days are slightly less than 12 hours. And there's, there's fewer of them when, they're slightly, when the day length is slightly more than 12 hours. But um, it, it's not like where you are, you'll have like uh, nine hour days and then 15 hour days in the summer or something. And when you, so the, basically it, it depends on variety a little bit when it's going to develop, but it happens sometime in the autumn when the day length goes from 12 and a half hours down to 11 and a half hours when it makes that transition. It, it seems to be that that's where it happens. And if it's too cold, which happens in Fayetteville, it's too cold at that time of the year. So the seed heads will initiate, but they don't grow enough because it gets cold, it goes dormant. And then in the in the springtime, when it warms up, as soon as it starts growing, boom, there's all the seed heads. Um, but in in this part of the world where it's warm, it, it's it's a different kind of phenomenon. And so it's something I've been trying to understand too and trying to predict where when the seed heads would happen. Um, but you know something that I stumbled across, which kind of goes against what some of the research says? The research says if you put less nitrogen, you get more seed heads. There's a Japanese paper from the uh, Japanese uh, Society of Turfgrass Science Journal that says that. But uh, I noticed... I got tired of trimming my grass in pots. So I fertilized it less and less. So I'm down now to fertilizing twice a year. So I'll just fertilize in January and July. And as I fertilize the grass less, there's way fewer seed heads. <laughs> so 
I think some of the some of the seed head flush that you see is because you've got brand new laser on a green that was established and you you grow it in and it's young and it's not really being managed like a mature turf it's still like because when people grow in turf i think they tend to fertilize it a bit more and and i just i wonder if if the seed heads under regular management and you cut the nitrogen back maybe it's not going to be such a massive flush like like you've observed but yeah those pictures are shocking because the tiff eagle is fine and right next to it it looks like a forest of of discolored turf because the the color that it's not even green anymore it's it's white and yellow white. and purple and yeah <laughs> yeah it's like i said it's um it, it's it's definitely part of the ugly because it's just you know you you can't mow it uh you, you it has you know like you said this kind of white pale just awful color that you you know would, would not be acceptable and and of course the the ball roll is you know even more um you know, hideous than it is, um, you know, during the peak of the growing season. So it's, yeah, and, and of course it's, you know, it's, it's always one of those things, Micah, that, you know, over the years, um, especially here in the transition zone that I have learned is that, you know, spring performance of golf putting greens is, is critically important because, um, it's really probably, you know, when they have the peak of play in terms of, you know, people just getting out and coming out to play. And if you have greens like this year, we're experiencing winter kill on, on some of the greens around here uh, and fairways and, and other other areas on the golf course. And to start the season like that, it just always gives people a, you know, a, a bad taste in their mouth about you know, the golf course, if, if the greens are really rough or there's winter kill or whatever. And so, um, you know, that spring performance is, is really important. And if you have, you know, this four five, six week period of, of really rough greens, because you can't keep the seed heads off of them, that's, that's going to be, um, that's going to be a, a negative, uh, that's probably going to be hard to overcome if we can't figure out how to reduce these. But that, uh, autumn, Ethophon app works pretty good on Meyer, doesn't it? On a, on it a does. It's, um, you know, I would say it's it's you know it's inconsistent. Um, you'll always get some suppression, but you know some years you'll get better suppression than others. And again, I think it's just strictly a timing issue, and it may be timing related to you know the fall weather conditions in terms of when you put it out as to how you know, complete the regulation is, but, but certainly, um, it's, uh, it's the best, uh, the best tool we've got right now in terms of, of suppressing, uh, seed heads. Well, let's talk about the good things about zoysia greens now, because there's a reason why they are used all over East and Southeast Asia, because they just blow Bermuda grass away at tolerance of shade when they're mown low. So if you cut at putting green height and you put under some pretty intense shade and you let's uh, talk a little bit about photosynthetically active radiation and daily light integral and, and that type of thing. So we can put it in context and uh, you can kind of describe the level of shade that zoysia grass can tolerate 
and I suppose that it, in your studies or in, in Tom Walton's studies that you found the same thing, that when it comes to shade, the zoysia now all of a sudden is much, much better. But whether you're actually going to be having, in some parts of the world, you have that much shade just coming from the clouds, and then you add trees on top of that, and then all of a sudden you need to use zoysia. I, I'm not sure that there's so many places in in northwest Arkansas that actually get that much shade on, on putting greens. But do you maybe give us the elevator speech about what uh, PAR is and what DLI units are, and and then explain what uh, what the good things are about zoysia on greens and, and how much better it is than Bermuda grass and and maybe it's similar to bent grass or, or something. Okay. Well, certainly, um, you know, light is one of the, the raw ingredients that, that plants uh, need for uh, photosynthesis. And, um, you know, light from the sun um, emits a lot of different wavelengths, but there's a, a pretty narrow band of wavelengths that we call the visible light spectrum that, you know, are the colors of the rainbow. And um, within that spectrum, there are a couple of bands of, of red and uh, blue light that the plant actually uses to, to drive or, or to provide the energy to drive uh, photosynthesis. And so those, those wavelengths are called um, uh, photosynthetically active radiation. Uh, and you'll also hear them referred to as um, uh, photon flux density is another term that you'll, you'll hear people use uh, to describe that. Uh, but they're measured in a very kind of a unique and, and maybe not a very intuitive uh, unit in that they're measured in micromoles of energy. Uh, and then they're measured per uh, two units of area or a unit of area and a unit of time. And so typically when you see PAR radiation being reported, it's in micromoles per meter squared per second. And so that means every second of the day has a unique amount of energy that strikes the surface to to drive photosynthesis and so on a long day you could have 50,000 different units of energy that actually hit the surface and and you know affect photosynthesis so if if you've got all these different energy units and you know all of us are aware that you know early in the morning late in the day the energy is lower because of the angle of the sun uh, as the sun gets up to solar noon, it's going to be at the highest potential energy uh, level. And then, of course, anything that interferes with sun, clouds, trees, mountains, anything else that might block the sun uh, is going to affect how much energy that plant is getting during that period of the day. So when when I first started working on shade, people, you know, would talk about percent shade of hours of light or things like that. And and while those are those are you know somewhat descriptive, they don't really give you a, a quantitative measure of how much light the plant is actually getting uh, over the course of the day. And so uh, we started using, and we weren't the first to use it, uh, uh, obviously, but uh, we started using this concept of daily light integral, which basically seeks to sum up those 50,000 units of energy into a single number uh, that's called the daily light integral. And so the, the DLI or the daily light integral is basically a, a takes into account lower light in the morning and evening, you know, the effects of tree shade, the effect of shade from clouds or anything else. 
and you eventually get to a single number that's expressed in moles of energy per meter squared per day instead of micromoles per meter squared per second. Right. So it's, and, it's divided by a million, I think. Be, right. Yes, be, that's correct. Be, because uh, if you add together all the micromoles per second, you get the daily light integral, but it's a very big number with a lot of zeros. So if you divide it by a million, now you've got the daily light integral. That's correct. So, so this number, uh, one, one of the things I like about the daily light integral, Micah, is that um, I think it's, a, it's a, a, a unit or a number that's transferable. And that means that, you know, the daily light integral in Fayetteville is equal to the daily light integral in Bangkok. Uh, when you start talking about how much energy of light you got or, you know, uh, Montreal, Quebec or anywhere else in the world, moles per meter squared per day should be comparable between those locations where if you're talking about hours of sunlight, you know, four hours of sunlight, if you were in Alaska is very different from four hours of sunlight if you were in Florida. And so, um, you know, hours of light or percent shade don't don't transfer as easily as as DLI does. And so we have been working now since 2014, I think that's right, 2014 on studies where we're trying to look at the, um, you know, the shade tolerance of different grasses or the effects of cultural practices and things like that on shade tolerance. And we have kind of stuck with this DLI number as as the number that we're trying to really identify. And what, what we really want to do is establish what What's the minimum light requirement of this grass under these conditions, management conditions, or, or whatever? And so we've been we've we've done work on everything from sports Bermuda grass sports fields, overseeded sports fields, bent grass putting greens, Bermuda grass greens, and now zoysia grass greens to try to establish what those minimum DLI thresholds. Uh, are and, and again, that was really one of the the main things we wanted to get out of out of Thomas Walton's, um, you know, master's thesis comparing zoysia to Bermuda grass greens. I see if you've got a question. I've been talking for a while. Well, that's good. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, uh, I like to think of DLI as on a sunny summer day. If there's no clouds, and you're in uh june or july if you're in may june or july uh you're often going to have something about 60 to 65 that's the maximum so you pretty even if you're in dubai or if you're in phoenix you don't hit 75 you don't hit 80 it there's there's not that much light so the maximum on a sunny day anywhere in the world is going to be about 65 something like that and then if you're at that same time of year and there's a hurricane that comes through and and it, the hurricane just sits over you with just really thick clouds so above that hurricane it's it's sunshine but if you're under those clouds those clouds are blocking a lot of the light when i've measured this in japan in uh, like a typhoon type condition where in Japan they have sensors, so it's easy to get these data. Um, you'll you'll be less than five, okay? So so on an extremely cloudy day, extremely cloudy day in summer, you'll be um, you'll be at five or something. Um, but once you know that your maximum is sixty, 
then you start thinking, okay, so if you've got 30, that equals 50% shade. Um, because you have to think, uh, at some point, you have to think about what level of shade you have. But really, everything's tied back to the DLI, like like you say. So, um, and and I've argued for the numbers that, that I've not done... So I've not done controlled research about this, Mike, but I've just observed how grasses grow and then I've checked what the DLI is. And I, I think that for putting green height turf for warm season grasses, I call 40 a no problem DLI for Bermuda grass. Because if, if you average 40, that's, that's going to be okay. And for seashore paspalum, I say it's 30. And for zoysia at putting green height, I say it's 20. Um, and, and then you do the research and I, you come up with similar numbers, although for Bermuda grass, I know you're a little bit lower, but, but my, so the, the original research was from Clemson, right? Mm -hmm. From, Correct. from, and what was the name of that author? I, Todd, Todd Bunnell, Todd, Todd Bunnell and, and, and Burt McCarty. That used to be at the tip of my tongue because I, I read that paper so many times. I, I used to be so intimidated, Mike, by the terminology. Um, and, and when I read the photosynthetic photon flux density, PPFD, and saw those units of micromoles per meter squared per second, uh, I was really intimidated. And I thought, I can never understand this. Um, and it took me a it took me a decade or more to really jump into it and realize that I should try to understand it. And then once I did, I'm like, you know what? That's just what the machine's recording. I don't need to know what a photon is. I don't not need to know what a micromole is. I, I can figure this out. And, and so I became not intimidated by the numbers anymore. And I started studying this quite a bit and trying to figure out what the light conditions are where different grasses are growing because as I travel around the world and I see like why why do grasses perform so differently in Asia than they do in the United States? Um, Dr. Ken Kenworthy was just over here. We took a walk in Bangkok and uh, we really struggled to find any Bermuda grass, even in a park, um, because there's just different species growing. But you would expect it's warm. It's it's a warm climate. There should be Bermuda grass, but there's just not very much of it because it because of the the light conditions. I think so. Anyway, uh, let's go back to what you found with your research. So so I just said here's the numbers that I say. I say forty DLI is a no problem DLI for Bermuda grass. Um, oh oh. I'm, I'm going to say why I think my number is higher than Todd Bunnell's research and um, some of the research that, that you've done. I think you come up with a similar number, like 30 or 32 or something. Yeah, around 32. That's about what Todd Bunnell reported, yeah. And and the reason why I, I think it's because the studies are done in summer and they're done on a... a so, I, I shade... Shade stress is not going to, it's not going to kill the grass immediately. But, but if you, I would say that if you try to grow it at 30 and try to do that for uh, five years, uh, 
<laughs> you'll have problems. So it's that's not a no problem DLI. But if you do the study for three months at the sunniest time of the year and the best growing conditions, it can tolerate it for three months. But what about the other nine months of the year? And and then do, th- so now it's weakened going into the next year and do that and then just keep repeating that. That's why I think the numbers that, that I have are a little bit higher than some of these shorter term studies. But so, Mike, I'll ask a question because it's an interesting point. I, I wonder if, if too, if, you know, if you're, you're talking about, you know, Bangkok, um, you know, is does Bermuda grass ever go completely dormant there? It not even close. No, yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's uh, there's no large patch here. It, it it doesn't even get cold enough for there to be large patch. The 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 soil temperature never drops below about 24 degrees Celsius. I, I bet the t- soil temperature never drops below 70 Fahrenheit. Yeah, so I, I would assume then, yes, you're you're talking about, you know, and again, I agree with you. I mean, shade is a chronic stress. I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, once once it starts, you know, weakening the plant, it, it's never going to suddenly just bounce back. It's going to just continue to get weaker and weaker and weaker until, you know, it finally just exhausts itself and can't can't go anymore. And so I wonder if if in more of that Southeast Asia environment is because you you have that chronic stress on it basically 12 months out of the year whereas you know even you know you know notwithstanding that you know we're trying to do these studies over a three to five month period uh, we're also completely dormant for six months out of the year when we would have our lowest light conditions uh, basically during the you know the, the the fall and the the winter when we have the lowest light levels in terms of dli um, the grass is not photosynthesizing. So it's um, not really exhausting those reserves or trying to photosynthesize under under a minimal you know energy level. Yeah, if so once the temperature is low enough that the grass goes dormant, I don't care if, if it's if you're in <laughs> north of the Arctic Circle and you have zero light, it, there's no shade stress. So so you're right. Um, so the the magnitude of the the or the cumulative effect of of low light is amplified the warmer it is and, and the more warm days that you have mm-hmm. so that that's something that's really interesting and and uh the i've always been fascinated with the transition zone and just what grass is going to work the best because um you know being a greenkeeper being a golf course superintendent it's hard work wherever you are and in the transition zone, it's it's uh, it's it's especially hard work. And I've had a chance to work in in regions where we had both warm and cool season grasses. And there's a a large part of the world. Um, well, when I was a golf course superintendent, I was in Shanghai, which should be warm season grass, but we had all cool season. Then I went to Japan. We have bent grass greens and warm season everywhere else. Um, I've worked at Augusta, worked at uh, Old Waverly in Mississippi, which had bent grass greens, and then Bermuda grass everywhere else. So I've had a lot of a lot of my work has been uh, my work on golf courses has been in these areas with both grasses, and I still to this day am so curious about which one is going to give you the best playing conditions and and be the 
it's never easy to manage, but just like the, the, cause you've got all the winter kill stuff too. See, I've always been places where it doesn't really get cold enough to have major winter kill problems if you go with the warm season. So what, what do you think? Like at this stage of your career, you've, I, I was looking at your web, uh, profile, your profile at the university. You've been there a professor at university of Arkansas for 25 years now. Correct. So you, you've, you've, and would you, you consider that transition zone, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. We've, uh, on our research farm, we have everything from, uh, St. Augustine, uh, to, uh, Kentucky bluegrass and perennial ryegrass and, you know, everything in between bent grass, um, zoysia bermuda, centipede, uh, buffalo grass. We've got it all growing here. <laughs> and so, for, do, and none of it grows really well. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I saw an interesting article. I've got a blog post about that too, uh, from like the 1953 or 1955 American Society of Agronomy meeting before the crop science division was formed, and uh, but the turfgrass group put a note in there and they suggested uh, not calling it the transition zone, but they suggested calling it the twilight zone, <laughs> which I, yeah. I thought was, was good. It, like the turf grass twilight zone. Yeah, I've um, also heard it called the crabgrass belt. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what, after 25 years in, in that part of the transition zone, um, do you have, uh, a favorite grass or one that you think has the fewest problems? Like, it, are, are you in a bent grass area? Are you in a Bermuda grass area in, in your mind? Like, yeah, cause I well, know I'll, people are using everything. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give you the 25 year, um, short, short story. When I, when I first came to Arkansas in the late 1990s, um, most of the state um, and most of the populated parts of the state were all bent grass. So if you were down in Little Rock or Hot Springs or over in Jonesboro, Fort Smith, Arkansas, Fayetteville, Arkansas. So basically anything, um, you know, in the northern half of the state, central to northern half was was all bent grass. And then when you got down into the deep southern part of the state, they had, you know, older, you know, tiff green uh, type putting surfaces, but, but there weren't that many golf courses down there. There, you know, it's a, a less populated area. And so you just don't have that many golf courses, but then about, Oh, I guess it's been 12 to 15 years ago. Um, as ultra doors started becoming, you know, much more popular and, and certainly, um, people were showing that they, they could produce a much higher quality putting surface than some of the older, uh, Bermuda grass varieties, then people in central Arkansas started converting to uh, ultra dwarf greens. And, and now it's, you know, probably if you went down to, to the Little Rock Hot Springs area where most of the golf is, um, I would say it's probably either 50-50 or probably tipping some in the um, direction of Bermuda grass now. There's not as many bent grass courses. Some of the the really high end country clubs are still bent grass, but most of them have converted to Bermuda grass. And then Northwest Arkansas, which is the other large population base. Um, most of the courses up here are still bent grass. And we have uh, a couple of courses that have gone to Bermuda grass. Uh, but, um, you know, it's definitely, I would say, um, 
it's much riskier to grow Bermuda grass up here in the northern half of the state than it is in central Arkansas or southern Arkansas. And so, and then once you move into Missouri, and that think, that risk is is because of potential winter kill, right? Potential winter kill, absolutely. And so, um, the, the if if I were going to pick a grass for you know a high end country club in Arkansas, you know, excluding a few of the ones that are down in deep south Arkansas, I would still recommend bent grass. Uh, and the reason is is that uh, you basically have a twelve month season. Uh, that the, the grass can be used for play and you know we don't get a ton of great golfing days in the middle of the winter but you'll get some uh, so you'll get a 12-month season uh, and um, you don't have this this you know risk of losing a huge chunk of your season due to winter kill um, you know if bent grass struggles it's going to struggle in you know july august maybe a little bit into september but even if you have some weak areas or have some areas that are you know a little beat up coming out of the summer um, it's much easier to just come in and do some cultivation and get some more seed on the ground and then usually by you know the end of the fall season you've, you're back to good healthy uh, bent grass um, bermuda grass is a great surface and the courses that have it here in the state are doing a great job of managing i've played on some great bermuda grass greens here uh, but but that one out of every five years if you have pretty significant winter kill it it really um it can really you know um just completely ruin a, a, a golfing season because it, it's not easy to to get those greens back into shape during the middle of the golfing season to get them back healthy again and so that's one of the things I don't like about Bermuda grass, and especially up here in, in the farther northern parts of the state. The other thing I don't I don't like about it as much as bent grass is that it has a very short growing season. I mean, oftentimes you don't we only get maybe maybe six months <coughs> of green grass. So you're you're playing on dormant turf for the other six months. And again, it's it's a good dormant surface. I'm not saying it's not doable and i think with pigments and stuff now people are you know making them look a little bit better aesthetically uh but um i i still probably lean more towards bent grass just because i think it's a better all season grass that doesn't have as much of a risk of, of catastrophic you know loss in in your climate right yeah well thank you uh that, that's very interesting to hear um yeah i i think one of the challenges with warm season grasses, when you push them into places where it's relatively cool, is one of the benefits is they don't grow so much, so you don't have to mow so much. <laughs> but the problem is, if you get any blemishes, all of a sudden that not growing <laughs> becomes a huge hindrance because <laughs> you you all of us and and you get more weed pressure. So so you've got more weed pressure. The divots don't recover, and if you have any disease scars or any damage from winter kill or something, all of a sudden now your short growing season and your inability to really grow in the cooler temperatures uh, becomes a problem. So, yeah, yeah. it's... One, it's one thing I'll also say, Mike, and we haven't done any control studies on this, but, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, we, we um, used to to promote zoysia grass in this region is that it has better cold tolerance 
than Bermuda grass, especially when we're talking, you know, lawns or fairways or, or anything like that, it, it tends to, to really have very little to minimal, no problems with winter injury. Uh, but, um, we have we have made some observational or, or have made some observations, I should say, on laser, and I, I think it's going to probably have to be covered uh, as aggressively as you would cover a Bermuda grass um, here in this region. I, I just think it, you know it's going to get winter kill if you don't aggressively cover it uh, during our coldest periods. Yeah. I, so if if you look at where zoysia comes from, and you look at the ones that are cold tolerant. So the zoysias that grow in cold areas are zoysia japonica, which is a really coarse leaf blade, which is used in Asia. In Northern Asia, it's used on golf course rough, or up in the mountains, it's used on golf course fairways. And and that's the type that typically would be used on lawns or is used in Kansas City or in places where it gets cold or Philadelphia, or something like that. You look at the ones that are fine-bladed enough to be used on a putting green and that have that dwarf growth habit that is uh, suitable for mowing at, at a putting green height. Those are ones that if you see them growing in the wild, that's in Manila, that's in Indonesia, that's in places that don't have any winter. Right. And and I I don't know where the varieties that are now commercially available in the USA for putting greens, uh, you know, where those were collected or what genes are in those plants. But I call these types tropical zoysia, and it's a totally different species. Well, I mean, all of these, uh, all the zoysias can uh, hybridize with each other, but they have been classified as a different species where this would be a zoysia matrella or a zoysia pacifica and laser is actually a hybrid between uh zoysia matrella i think and zoysia minima yeah. right so which i think is from new zealand um so anyway the uh is it from new zealand do you know you know the i don't minima? know where that that minima plant was collected i'd, I'd have to ask uh, dr Ambika to see if uh, she I, knows. She was one of the first people I asked uh, a year ago or so to be on the ATC office hours, and, I, and she she wasn't able to join at the time. I need to to talk with her because I want to talk with her about the seed head, the biology of the seed head production for one, yeah. and more about breeding and 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 the characteristics of these zoysias. Um, so. Anyway, yeah, I, it, it doesn't surprise me that the ones used on greens, uh, I think people in the United States tend to think zoysia has cold tolerance because the ones that have historically been used in the United States are the types that do have cold tolerance. But there's a lot of tropical zoysia that there, there's no reason to expect that it would have cold tolerance. Um, so, Well, and I, I think, uh, and you know, we're seeing that this year. Um, we've got... Um, two golf courses here in Northwest Arkansas that have uh, Matrella fairways and tees. Uh, and um, for the most part, they've done really well, but this is the second time in the last, probably it was probably 10 years ago, the previous time where uh, they also have seen a, quite a bit of winter kill this past winter, uh, especially in those aggressively managed areas, uh, approaches, collars, uh, some of the tees. 
any place that they might have had some shade stress on it during the the, the growing season. Um, uh, they've, they've, they're seeing a lot of winter kill, even at that you know, fairway height of cut or collar height of cut. But uh, again, when you get them down to especially a putting green height of cut, then they become even, you know, more susceptible um, to winter kill. Yeah, it's, it's tough. It's a, it's a difficult place to grow grass. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, so like, can you, let's close by you telling me if you remember what was the magnitude of the difference when you put the heavy shade stress on uh, Thomas Walton's research with, so so you put shade covers over the tiff eagle and shade covers over the laser, and then you measured. The, you know what the DLI was. Correct. And yes, so we had uh, we had five different um, shade treatments in that study, and it basically was, you know, a full sun control, and then we had 20, 40, 60, and eighty percent uh, reduction shade cloth. And so, um, again, the idea is to try to figure out at what level of light does the plant or the turf start showing weakness or even failing. And so um, what we saw in that study was that with the um, uh, with the with the Bermuda grass, in, in this case, the uh, the the tiff eagle Bermuda grass, we were looking at about uh, 30 as the minimum DLI for Bermuda grass. Okay, 30 to 32, varied a little bit over uh, the course uh, of the year. Uh, but when we uh, looked at the Zoysi grass, we were down um, to uh, about, let me see here, I've got to pull these numbers up. I don't want to misrepresent that. I think I was looking at, the, I was looking at I will put a, I will put a link to this thesis um, and okay, all right. the all the blog posts. So everything will go into the show notes. Um, so anybody who's really interested in checking out all the details, the uh, this thesis, maybe Travis Russell's thesis where they looked at uh, bank grass shade um, and some of the the articles that you've published about that. Um, I'll put it yeah, so, so again, Tiff Eagle was a, a DLI of about 30 was considered the minimum DLI for Tiff Eagle. Uh, laser, we were around 17. So a little bit less than your 20, but I would say, you know, based on um, it's, what, it's, what we know about statistics, that's a, that's a good ballpark. Yeah. I, I, I think I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty happy to just guess and, and be within three DLI. <laughs> <laughs> So that's, uh, that's fine. But yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, it's a huge difference because that's, that is a massive amount of shade because remember a sunny day is going to be 60. So that, that means that you could have an acceptable putting green with, uh, two thirds of the light never reaching the grass, right. which is, which is amazing. But it's also amazing to see really nice zoysia greens in Southeast Asia, uh, on a cloudy day and they're surrounded by massive trees. So they're, they're in tree shade and cloud shade and the grass is still fine. So there, there's a re there is a place for these grasses. Um, maybe it's not in Northwest Arkansas, but, uh, <laughs> it, it, it is kind of cool to see how different grasses perform all around the world. Thank you, Dr. Richardson, for sharing all of that information with me today. And uh, I'm glad we, we could finally have a chance to talk here on the ATC Double Cut.
Well, thank you, Micah. It's uh, always good to see you and uh, visit with you and enjoy following uh, uh, your your blog post and your podcast. And so uh, I try to keep up with them as much as I can because uh, I think uh, you and I think a lot alike. I think a lot of topics related to some of these, uh, these tropical transitions on uh, grasses. So uh, it's nice to, to kind of see other people coming at it from a different direction and a different methodology, but we kind of can all, you know, meet at the same basic yeah. point, which is kind of nice. Yeah, it's 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 fun. I, I enjoy studying about turf grass. Anybody who's watched or listened to this knows that I'm kind of interested in, in turf grass and in a, a wide range of things related to turf grass, but I'm often traveling and uh, I, I can't really maintain... Uh, I, and I don't have a staff or grad students or anything to like run a big research program. So I have a kind of a unique research program that's in my mind and, and doing data analysis based on things that I observe and uh, notes that I make in my notebook or, or photos that I take and studying what other people are doing and then trying to relate like your DLI numbers to what I see. So it's, uh, it's, it's really fun. I've learned so much from you and we've, uh, We've corresponded a lot and spent some good times together, especially when I went to the field day in 2016, when you were over here in Thailand in 2019. And yeah, we're about due to, to meet again. And uh, maybe I, I have fond memories every year of that field day and think I should, I should try to make it back. So, Well, we need to make it happen. Maybe we can have you come over uh, and speak at our field day sometime. That, w- that would be good. All right. Well, we can, when we have another good topic to discuss, we can do it on the show. And uh, otherwise, I'll let everybody go. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed hearing from Dr. Richardson today. And I will say goodbye and sign off now for ATC from Yantikau, Thailand. I'm Michael Woods. Bye-bye. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Mike.